Thank you all for joining us, uh, both in person and online. My name is Norbert Michelle. I am the Vice President and Director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. We're going to have opening remarks from Majority Whip Emmer in just a second, and then we're going to follow up with a panel moderated by me uh, that includes managing partner of Sustainable Capital, Chris Kamir, uh, Wharton's uh, Christina Skinner, and Bank Policy Institute CEO, Greg Baer, and then last, my colleague at Cato, Nick Anthony. Uh, Congressman Emmer will have time to take maybe just one question, and our panel will take a few as well when we get to the end of the discussion. And when we do get to the Q&A, I would only ask please that you do ask a question if you're called upon, not, not give us a statement, but really do get quickly to a question, um, and one that is related to the policy topic. That would really be our, that's our goal here. And also up front, please be sure if you haven't double checked that your phone is on silent, that would be very much appreciated. If you are following us on social media, please use hashtag CatoEcon. Okay. Our first speaker today is Representative Tom Ember. He's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives since January of 2015, where he's represented Minnesota's 6th District. In the new 118th Congress, his uh, fellow Republican colleagues uh, elected him to be House Majority Whip. He's a very well-respected member of the House Financial Services Committee, and he is both on the Digital Assets and Capital Markets subcommittees. Most relevant for our event today, he was the first member of Congress to introduce legislation that would prohibit the Federal Reserve from issuing a retail central bank digital currency, or CBDC. So please help me and welcome Congressman Tom Emmer. Appreciate it. Hello. Hello. Yeah, that's right. I want to thank Cato uh, for inviting me to provide a few. We okay? All right. Just want to make sure I'm not breaking everything when I got up here. That's where we're accused of all the time. I, I want to thank Cato for inviting me to come today uh, and give you a few uh, remarks. Obviously, it's a pleasure to be with all of you because uh, the alternative, which I'll experience in just a few minutes, is driving back up to the hill and being with all of them. So it's really good to be with all of you. Uh, when I joined Congress eight years ago, a staffer gave me a book that discussed the promises of blockchain and crypto to disintermediate economic and social frameworks and to restore control to the individual. I've come to refer to this concept today as the ownership economy. But eight years ago, and by the way, that comes from some of you, I'm just referring what you people are saying. But eight years ago, I just saw this technology as a solution to the mismanagement of our monetary policy and a restoration of vital American values, privacy, individual sovereignty, and free markets. The United States leadership in the global economy is propelled by our ability to leverage innovations that make markets and communication more efficient. For example, the United States responded to the emergence of the Internet, a decentralized digital infrastructure upon which anything can be built, by advancing policies that prioritize these American values, privacy, individual sovereignty, and free markets. As a result, the Internet stands today as an infrastructure that any American can access freely without the permission of public officials, which is very important, unlocking an abundance of economic activity and opportunity. America remains the techno technological leader, not because we force innovations to adapt our values under regulatory duress, but because we allow technology that holds these values at their core to flourish. The next phase of the digital economy the ownership economy consists of a trusted, immutable mechanism for transferring value in real time over the Internet. Enter crypto, a technology that can shift economic power from centralized institutions back into the hands of the people. It's transformational, and it can be threatening 
Yes, it can be very threatening to unelected bureaucrats right here in Washington. As the federal government seeks to maintain and expand the financial control to which it has grown accustomed, the idea of the central bank digital currency has gained traction within the institutions of power in the United States. As a government-controlled, programmable money that can easily be weaponized into a surveillance tool. The very ethos of central bank digital currencies is everything I would argue that Bitcoin and crypto in general stands against. It's everything the United States of America stands against. Decentralized cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin, CBDCs are a digital form of sovereign currency that are designed and issued by the federal government and transact on a ledger on a ledger that is controlled by the federal government. Uh, not only significant tracks at transaction level data uh, down to the individual user, but also the ability to program the CBDC to choke out politically unpopular activity. For this reason, I introduced the CBDC Anti-Surveillance State Act to halt the effort of unelected bureaucrats here in Washington, D.C. from issuing a central bank digital currency that strips Americans of their right to financial privacy. Our bill would, one, prohibit the Fed from issuing a CBDC directly to anyone. Two, it would bar the Fed from using a CBDC to implement monetary policy and control the economy. And three, it would require the uh, Fed's CBDC projects to be transparent to Congress and the American people. Recent actions from the Biden administration make it clear that they are not only itching to create a digital dollar, but they are willing to trade Americans' right to financial privacy for surveillance-style CBDC. We don't make trade-offs with Americans' rights. Through a series of executive order directive focused on CBDC research and development and a mindset that the United States has fallen behind other nations like China in, when it comes to crypto development, think about that. We should never emulate China. That is not what this country, uh, it, it, this country is the in freedom. We don't chase a communist style top-down uh, surveillance uh, uh, economy that the Chinese have more importantly, the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, look, the, uh, the crypto development, that it's the Federal Reserve, it's the Treasury, the White House, and others uh, within these uh, bureaucracies are working frantically to, uh, in their minds, keep up with our competitors. But nothing could be more dangerous than adhering to a manufactured sense of urgency like this and ultimately developing a CBDC that is not open permissionless and private. So, as other countries like China develop CBDCs that fundamentally omit the benefits and protections of cash, it is more important than ever to ensure the United States digital currency policy upholds our American values of privacy, individual sovereignty, and free market competitiveness. With that, it goes without saying that the challenges behind us and the challenges ahead of us uh, in ensuring the United States welcomes the ownership economy that Bitcoin and crypto are significant. However, I'm confident that American values will always prevail against the power-hungry whims of unelected bureaucrats. Enshrined within our American values, crypto should be fostered and developed right here in the United States of America, just like the Internet. So the future of our global financial system embodies our values, again, of privacy, individual sovereignty, and free markets, just like the Internet, rather than the values of the CCP. I am grateful for the opportunity, again, to join all of you here today, not just for the forum, but also in our daily fight to equalize and capitalize on the enormous opportunity for the growth that crypto and blockchain presents. And I, again, I thank you for having me here today. And uh, it, when they start waving and jumping up and down, I got to go. But if you want to do something, Norbert, I'm, I'm happy to answer whatever. Thank you very much. You want stage right out? If, uh, if, if nobody has a question in the audience, I do have one online that I will 
I can read off. But if anybody, oh, I see this was a setup. I got it. No, no, no I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Whatever you guys want to talk about. Okay. Okay, I'm going to read one that was submitted online anonymously, and and then that's going to be the one quota that I was given. Um, this is. Uh, uh, I find I think I like this one. Here we go. Um, the Fed is clearly. I'm just reading this, okay? <laughs> the Fed has clearly indicated that a decision to issue a CBDC would be a decision for Congress and that it has no intention of issuing a CBDC without authorization from Congress. Therefore, why do we need a bill to tell the Fed to do something, to, to tell, I'm sorry, to tell the Fed to not do something it was never planning on doing? It was never planning on doing. Whoever sent that in, I, I really appreciate it, and I understand their logic, but they are assuming that there are good actors in this space and that what they are hearing from these unelected bureaucrats who are saying there's nothing to see here. It's all good. We need to have uh, permission. It's interesting. The Federal Reserve issued uh, some uh, documents recently that my staff was provided. I uh, just showed up at one of their uh, events, and they have a... Uh, a, a slide, I would say, or in this deck, where it lists what the Federal Reserve is responsible for. It's responsible for uh, the money supply. It's responsible for the two-tier uh, rails of the banking system, uh, the overnight window, those types of things that we're used to, right? You know what the bullet point was at the bottom? Central bank digital currency. They're putting it out in their own materials today, and they have no authority. They have not been directed by Congress to do a thing. Let's understand that what they say is not necessarily what they're doing. You are dealing with central bankers around the world, which I am not opposed to the central banking system. But the idea, and I, I think these people literally looked at this uh, more than a decade ago and said, oh, look at those kids that are playing with this Satoshi white paper, and isn't that fun? It's kind of like, like gaming, right? Virtual gaming, it's virtual money, it's never gonna go anywhere, and oops. Then it started gaining some traction because people don't trust the way our money supply has been handled. They don't trust our monetary policies. They're worried about what our government is failing to do to ensure stability and a prosperous future. So what do they do? It starts to grow. And what do these bureaucrats do? They go, and by the way, bureaucrats with their partners in the private sector who are using the existing two-tier uh, banking system and want to protect it because that's their market share, they went, well, now we got to kill it. And so they started taking actions to try and knock this train off the tracks, and they found out much what the Chinese found out. By the way, uh, Chinese, you can't mind, they haven't been able to shut it all down. If they can't shut it down, nobody's going to shut it down. So they realized at some point, I can't, one, it's here, and it's not going away. Two, I can't shut it down, so guess what I'm gonna do now? I'm going to swallow it up and make it part of what we run because then we will control it. Uh, that's the innocent way of looking at it. The not-so-innocent way of looking at it is when people say to me, yeah, I know what you keep saying about the uh, digital yuan and how they use that to control the population. They turn your card on, they turn your card off. Uh, you have the outbreak in Wuhan. You can't pay for a hotel room. You can't buy transportation out of there. In fact, they will tell you when you can go to the grocery store because they'll turn on your, uh, your card. That will never happen here in the Western Hemisphere. Anybody familiar with Justin Trudeau and what he did to shut down the uh, protests up in Ottawa? He did exactly that. I, and again, I appreciate the question. I appreciate uh, that somebody is asking what is legitimate. You know, if Congress has the authority and they're, they're the only way that this can happen, well, if you want to just assume people are going to do the things that you expect them to do, you do that at your own risk. I, I look at it this way. They are already moving in this direction. They already have friends of ours, people who believe in individual liberty and freedom, the right to self-determine, who think this is a good idea. It's, I, I just want to remind you uh, two different things, but in the early 1970s, they created something called FISA courts. These were special courts that were created by Congress for what? To surveil foreign nationals that might be up to no good on American soil. And you know what the argument was made back in the 70s? I wasn't there, I was a kid, I was actually having fun. 
The argument back then was made, it will never be used to spy on American citizens. I rest my case. Thank you, guys. Enjoy it. I do remember the 70s as well. Thank you very much, Congressman. And, and we may get to some of that, that same question, uh, depending on how things go. I have, I have very similar feelings on that one, but we'll see how it goes. Um, so to start off, I'm going to go straight to my colleague, Nick. Um, just want to make sure we kind of set the stage and everybody understands exactly what we're talking about. Nick, would you please give us a quick description? What exactly are we talking about here? What is a retail central bank digital currency or a retail CBDC? Sadly, the, the name does not help by any means when it comes to raising awareness around this issue. Granted, that's a double-edged sword because it doesn't help proponents either. But when we boil down what a retail central bank digital currency is, I want you to think about it a little bit like the, the cash that might be in your pocket for a second. That is a liability of the Federal Reserve. That is a, a direct tie to the Federal Reserve, to the central bank. Now, I said I only want you to think about that for a second, though, because it's a mistake to say that this is digital cash. Because we start thinking, oh, all the things that we get with cash are going to be produced one for one. So the congressman brought up privacy. Cash is probably one of the most private, if not the most private options that we have, at least widely on the market. A CBDC is not going to offer that same level of protection because of the way it's set up being on a digital database. And in the same in the same sense, it's also not going to offer the finality that cash offers, where all payments are final. Like he brought up, there's opportunities for intermediaries to step in. Right now, we have that largely restricted because the government has to go to the private sector to then make that happen. But you can have cases where, like in Canada, they ended up freezing the bank accounts. You can end up stopping payments, undoing payments, making payments happen without your say. So. It's a little bit like having the, the paper dollars that might be in your pocket digitized, but I want to be very clear that we shouldn't think of this as digital cash by any means. Okay, thank you, Nick. All right, now with that as sort of our baseline here, I'm going to start with Greg, and then for a slightly different take on the same question, go to Christina. Um, we hear, keep in mind what Nick is just describing, and we hear sort of all the time, we hear, Okay, so we already have digital dollars. The, the CBDC thing, this is it's just another form of the digital dollar. Uh, what's the big deal? This is, this is silly. Greg, is that the right way of looking at this? You know, you're coming from the banking industry, but in general, is that, how, how close is that to accurate? Yeah. Um, when I get, and just sort of an extension of what a CBDC is, which I think sort of gets to this. So again, if you, if you have a dollar in your pocket, um, and I always teach this in my law school class, you've lent money to your government, right? That's their liability. Um, and they use that for their assets, the government's assets. If you have an account at a bank, you have lent money to your bank, and they take that and they turn that into their assets, which are loans. If you take that money and deposit it in a money market mutual fund, they take that and they turn that into their assets, which are things like commercial paper, right? So to the extent that you're holding cash in your wallet right now, you're funding the government. To the extent that you have a bank deposit, you are funding loans to yourself and others in your community. To the extent that you have a, a deposit in a money market fund, you're funding basically commercial lending. So that's really important to understand. And in fact, it's so widely misunderstood on the Hill and elsewhere that we actually did a special blog post just on this point. So it, if you put a CBDC in a bank wallet, and that's sort of what we're going to talk about a lot, is... If it's in a digital wallet, whether that's at PayPal or Bank of America or where, wherever, that does not become a liability of the bank. That doesn't turn into a loan or any other asset that a bank holds. It's just gone. Um, and that's really important because that means for every dollar that shifts out of a bank deposit or even a money market fund into a CBDC, that is lost lending. I'd also just add sort of relatedly um, in terms of how this all works, and this gets to, I think, some of the privacy concerns. There are different ways to administer this. There is the possibility of doing a direct tokenized central bank digital currency, which would be like the dollar in your wallet. It's a bearer instrument. It's validated based on what it is, not who owns it. Um, really, no central banks are talking about that. Certainly not the Fed, 
not the Bank of England, which had its announcement last week, not, not Europe. All of them are talking about, and this really sort of changes the equation on CBDC, they're all talking about an indirect account where the central bank doesn't have to do AML, KYC. They don't have to do customer service. It's not their account. It's an account held at a bank or a non-bank that's sort of like a bank, so call it a PayPal. But that, that really sort of changes a lot of the value equation because now that's going to be monitored just the way banks monitor for KYC, AML, your deposit account. They'd be monitoring your CBDC to the extent that you're spending that in, in, in their account. And, and this is, I'm, I'm going to come, one second, Christine, and I'm going to come right back to you. But this is, I think, in my mind, this is relevant also to the question that we asked the congressman. Uh, because you can read the Federal Reserve Act many different ways. There is nothing, as far as I can tell, uh, that would prohibit a, an intermediated CBDC, which is what Greg is talking about. Now, people would argue about that. I would. Me too. I know you would, I know you would, I know you would. But in, in one at least manifestation, uh, I can envision where that would happen and or happen without any amendment to the Federal Reserve Act, a simple appropriation from Congress, and you would have an intermediated CBDC. So I, I, this is one of the reasons that I believe it is important to have legislation prohibiting it because I think that you're actually much closer to the legal authority. This is a, this is a point of contention. Uh, and, and Christine and I are going to tag team against you now. That's okay. We're we're good. We can do that. We can do that. Uh, yeah. Because uh, I say, my, actually, my, I don't know if I was a co-author. My colleague Paige Paradon, I think a year ago, uh, wrote a legal analysis of this very question about whether um, the Federal Reserve Act authorizes or any of the Treasury Acts authorizes. Concluded no. They tend to refer to things like prints and dies when it comes to the currency of the United States. And then more as a procedural matter, this was little noticed, but in the administration's digital asset announcement, they had actually sought an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel about whether they had this authority. And there's a footnote in that announcement that says, we have received a legal opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel, period. Now, if that opinion had said green light, I suspect they might have released that opinion or at least said what it said. And I think the fact that they were silent on its contents probably indicates that they were told they did not have the authority. And I think that also dovetails with the remarks by the Fed um, over the years as well. But Christina, you jump off the top rope. I'm happy to be a chief legal counsel here if you would uh, like me to, to continue before I get to the rest of my remarks. So I mean, so, so first I think, you know, I'll just carrying on with this conversation, central bank digital currency would be a new form of public money, right? So that's a very important distinction to bear in mind. We've been talking about what CBDC is as a baseline and I want to add, right, that we have public money and we have private forms of money, right? So private forms of money would include demand deposits issued by banks. Some would say that they would include money market instruments and so on and so forth, right? But there are fundamentally two kinds of public money that the state issues, right? One is cash and coins, right? So currency, the stuff that you can hold in your hand. And then the other are central bank reserves, right? So only the banking system has access to central bank reserves, right? Those only flow to the financial system. So the point is that CBDC would be a fundamentally new kind of public money. So going back to this legal question, and then I'll sort of elaborate if you if you want me to, you know, I think as a as a baseline, right, the Constitution has given Congress the power to coin money. Right, so the power to create new forms of public money belongs exclusively to Congress. And in fact, the framers of the Constitution went to great lengths to, pre to prevent the president, the executive branch, from having any part of that power. So I find it a little bit interesting when people claim that Treasury can decide this question, the White House, the Department of Justice. I can't really fathom how that would be consistent with the Constitution. So Congress has the exclusive prerogative to do that, and it's delegated some of that power to the Federal Reserve, right? So it follows pretty basically that if the Federal Reserve wants to create a new form of public money, it has to have permission from its principal, right? The Federal Reserve is an agent of Congress. Congress is the principal. And as Greg was saying, there are a couple places in the Federal Reserve Act where Congress said to the Fed, okay, you can create paper money, right? It's very specific about the dyes, the kind of ink that would be used on the actual notes. Um, the Federal Reserve Act also provides for very specific ways that the Fed can get central bank money, central bank reserves to banks and other components of the financial system during emergencies. 
So the Federal Reserve Act is pretty specific about the kinds of money that the Fed can create. And so this is basically where I cash out on the legal analysis. Um, now, I've done some other work thinking about individual rights and money, and I'm not sure if you want me to carry on with that or cede the floor for a bit. No, I want you to do that, and then Christian's going to get my back, and we'll come right back. But I, Christina has a new article. We do, we, yeah. we just, so I haven't used my legal degree in two decades, so I <laughs> want to present you with the perspective of someone investing in technology So uh, to make sure that we don't kind of discuss a straw man here and assume a particular implementation that seems to be going around. Okay. Uh, so I don't have a legal degree. <laughs> so currencies are technologies that can be used as money, right? So you typically use it to exchange it for goods and services. And from an economic perspective, they're kind of the operating system of an economy. And we haven't upgraded this operating system for quite some time. So you have, yes, these paper implementation, and then you have basically what we call database solutions. And the paper implementation is really great, right, because it settles instantly, it's basically censorship resistance, it usually has no fees and so forth, whereas 97% of all transactions today really happen in a digitally mitigated fashion using database solutions, and that's convenience, but provides absolutely no privacy and is absolutely subject to censorship, is uh, absolutely subject to the terms and commissions uh, of that intermediary that you're introducing in your private commercial transactions, and that's simply inefficient. So the point there being is everybody here in the room pays about 4% of their income from the average income level directly to the commercial banking system. Every good and service that you're buying is inflated by at least 5-6% because of outdated merchant account systems. So the legacy technology, the technology debt that the legacy financial system introduces basically exerts at least a 10% penalty on the real economy. And real economy here is capital R, capital E, as in there's an economy and there's a conduit to that economy we call financial services. They're supposed to facilitate the exchange of commercial goods, right? So they're not part of the real economy as far as I'm concerned, but really the damages are much larger. So in 2021, global GDP stood at 96 trillion. 2021 was the best year for financial service providers who raked in 22 and a half trillion. For me, the entire amount is a damage to the real economy. And so the point coming back to this that we should be discussing is entirely limited to the fact whether or not we're issuing a digital bearer instrument that's US dollar denominated. Everything else is going to be limited to a Starman discussion if we're assuming a particular implementation. And, uh, I wrote very long articles. We discussed these topics for a thousand hours, including with Tom a, a year ago, where explaining this in more detail. Okay. Uh, so keeping in mind the digital barrier aspect of this and, and where we've gone. Now, I'm, I'm going to come back to you, Christina. You have a new article uh, out, and you're looking at the legal aspects of the CBDC. Would you say that the CBDC is just a digital barrier instrument? It's just another form of the digital dollar? Is that a characterization that you would make? So no, it's it's not. Um, so I want to preface, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the way that I'm thinking about CBDC in the context of my article, but I also think it's important for us as a panel to discuss and to hear your thoughts on. To my mind, I think there is somewhat of a conflation between a payment system and a monetary instrument, right? So you can have a payment system that could be inefficient in some respects without necessarily needing to adopt new monetary instruments, right, which could mean stable coins, it could mean CBDC, right? But I think in some ways it's important to separate the two, the two issues, and especially with the case of CBDC. I mean, some central banks, most central banks, will offer as one of their primary rationale for CBDC efficiency in, in payment system, but I think it's worth questioning that rationale, right, whether that's really the first place to jump if we're looking for improvements in, in payments, given all of the other things that come along with CBDC. So all of the other things that come along with CBDC. So in the, some of the academic work that I'm doing right now on CBDC, I'm trying to encourage the public to think about CBDC, right, not as just a substitute for a digital dollar, but as sort of a constellation, uh, to borrow a, a legal phraseology, a bundle of, of rights, 
right? So when we think about money, and especially when we think about CBDC, it helps us to think, okay, what are the component parts here, and how is CBDC different from the dollars that we use today, right? So I start with this discussion of monetary sovereignty. Right, so if you talk to a lot of academics and policymakers, even re really sort of on the wonkish side of things, often what one hears is an argument made that the United States must maintain monetary sovereignty. Now, this is different from the national security aspect, and we can come back to that later, right? But the implication is that a sovereign state must exert maximum authority over its currency, and it is the sovereign prerogative of a nation to issue its currency, control its currency, and so on and so forth. And that argument, that terminology around monetary sovereignty is then used to say, well, of course then the United States has the right, the obligation to create a CBDC to rival or overcome upstarts like Bitcoin or stablecoin or even for that matter in the limit sort of any other kind of privately created currency that the Fed wouldn't be able to control with its monetary policy tools. Now, what I do in the paper is I say, you know, this is, this is a sleight of hand. This way that people talk about monetary sovereignty is relevant only in the context of international monetary law, right? So in the context of international monetary law, right, around the time of the Bretton Woods agreements, countries were really worried about what would happen to their sovereign prerogative over monetary policy if they had to maintain and sustain a gold standard, right? But, it, but monetary sovereignty means something completely different altogether when you're talking about it in the domestic context. In the domestic context, monetary sovereignty is all about who gets to issue money. Right, So it, one can't really use that term monetary sovereignty to say, to sort of import it into the domestic context and say, well, the, the state, the Fed, the Treasury has the sole or at least the dominant authority to issue money. Right, So I do this long history and I go back and I say, again, if you look at the way the founding fathers set up the Constitution, right, set up the country, and pretty much how we've carried on, you know, since that time, we've never had a state-dominant theory of monetary sovereignty. We've always had a popular notion of monetary sovereignty, where it's really important to have privately issued money check and rival the state-issued currency, basically to prevent the state from abusing the currency. Mostly that usually means debasing the currency or doing things that would arbitrarily cause inflation. Right, And so that's the system that we have. Now, CBDC, I would argue, would really shift the balance away from this popular version of sovereignty where we rely mostly on banks to issue money. Right, That's most, most of the money in circulation is bank-issued money, not you know, dollar bills. Um, and, and to the extent CBDC would intermediate the banking sector, which I'm sure Greg will talk about a little bit, right, that's going to shift the balance further toward the state and, and, and less so around popular monetary sovereignty. I also talk about property rights in money. Right? So it's really interesting to think about money as a type of property, right? Because Nick was saying before, the cash you have in your, in your wallet is a liability of the central bank, but it's a liability of the central bank only in an accounting sense. You don't actually have a contract right, with the government for anything, right? There is an economist that once said, and Norbert was there when we were talking about this, right? that once said that cash is an IOU nothing. Right? So, so what is a relationship exactly that you have when you have a dollar bill with the state? Right? And arguably, again, right, if you look at this history around what the framers thought about money and property, right, there's some kind of inherent right in value in state-issued or publicly-issued money, right? which is not to say that Americans have a right to be protected from inflation, but they certainly do have a right to be protected against arbitrary state action that would manipulate the value of money. Right? CBDC is programmable, so by definition, if the state wants to use CBDC, DC as a policy instrument to make it easier for certain groups to buy things and not others, right, then the value of money certainly could be adjusted with CBDC. Um, I also talk about privacy, but I think a lot of people have things to talk about privacy, so maybe I'll stop there and um, let you keep going. Yeah, I would just note, sort of going back and somewhat related to what Christina was saying, I mean, if, if you're thinking about a potential benefit of a CBDC as having the ability to have a tokenized bearer instrument and transact privately, you are in for a huge disappointment uh, because there is not a central bank in the world that is contemplating that, including ours. And the reason is very simple, which is if you do that, 
You can no longer have economic sanctions. You can no longer deter anti-money laundering. You can no longer counter the financing of terrorism because that is who will use a tokenized bearer instrument. And the reason they can't use cash is cash is very bulky and people keep track of your cash and you can't really take a armored car across borders. Um, but it still happens a lot. Um, yeah, I think a majority of the U.S. cash is actually overseas and a lot of it's being used illicitly. But the last thing in the world the world's central banks, including ours, want to sign up for is a tokenized bearer private CBDC. That is why all of them, including the, the Bank of England last week, have all said what we're going to do is an intermediated model where you're going to have a wallet at a bank or a non-bank and they're going to administer it and they're going to monitor your transactions just the way they monitor your bank transactions now. And it gets even worse because if you think about why do banks hold deposit accounts, what's in it for them, right? Why do they pay all the costs of administering it and answering the phone and doing all the KYC stuff, which is incredibly expensive. So if you're a bank, why the hell would I hold the deposit accounts? It's so damn expensive. Well, the reason is because you can lend the money out and earn a spread, right? And maybe you can also earn some interchange. But with a CBDC, you can't do that. You, you can't lend the money out. It's a central bank liability. It's not your liability. You probably can't charge interchange either. So this account is a loser, right? So how are you going to make money on this account? Well, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to charge a fee, so basically negative interest rates, or you're going to sell the data. I mean, right now, banks don't sell data. It's part of their core ethos is we don't sell data. We want people to trust banks, and we make our money by lending out the money. So if you set up a central bank digital currency and it's successful, which I don't think it would be, I think it's a complete fool's errand, but if it were successful, you would be sort of, you would be giving a massive incentive to everyone who holds these wallets to sell your data and, and have you have even less privacy. The reason, I, I'll just say really quickly, but we'll get, maybe we'll get back to it. The reason I don't think this is going to be successful, particularly now as interest rates have risen, is why would you hold central bank digital currency in a wallet and earn no interest when you can hold it in a bank deposit or a money market and earn interest? And the great financial stability concern about CBDC, which we'll get to, is there's only one time you'd do that, um, and that's if there's a financial crisis. And you'd say, well, maybe just today I want to move out of my bank deposit and then I want to move into the CBDC. And that implodes the banking system. Now, not if you're probably a small dollar person, but if you're a corporate treasurer and you say, well, I got $10 million here on account, I'm just a little nervous. So just for today, I'm going to move it over to the CBDC. Well, that becomes a rather massive financial stability problem. And I think that's why you've seen the Bank of England saying, we're only going to do this for retail, and we're going to cap the amount at, I think it was 15, 20,000 pounds. Um, but once you do that, well, what's the benefit of CBDC if it's only retail and you've got to have a bank account, account anyway, um, and it really doesn't have any use case, which is for me what a lot of this comes down to. What's the use case for a CBDC? And it's pretty hard to, to find. Thank you, Greg. Christian, you want to... All right, so we're here in Washington, D.C., and we often tend to confuse laws and rules. So lawmakers think of themselves as making laws. Laws are not being created. Laws are being discovered, and rules you can ignore all day long, whereas if you start to ignore the law of gravity, you will always fall flat on your face. So technology only integrates with real-world observable um, activities, with actual reality, the physicality of things. So it's important to understand that the United States dollar in its printed form is our most important export product. Almost a trillion dollars is circulating internationally. Obviously, it's legally an IOU, but practically an IOU that's never called upon. And it, it, it exceeded by revenues only by refined oil products. So the larger point here being is it's been very successful in that particular facility, as in there's a dozen other countries who started ex uh, importing that particular technology if and when and where their own technology, their own currency failed, i.e. through hyperinflation. So it's a foregone conclusion at this point in time that other countries will issue a programmable digital bearer instrument. I think we can all agree upon that, and we did a lot of research on that, as everything uh, online available at this point in time. Larger point there being is in order to be competitive, we have to provide a similar product like a digital bearer instrument. And from where we are sitting, it really doesn't matter who is issuing it, if it's issued correctly. And in terms of deposits, already 45% of all M1 deposits are actually stored by non-banks, so the PayPal's of the world are moved by non-banks. So the, the primary objective and primary moneymaker for banks is actually lending, which actually, if you had a digital bearer instrument, could be improved upon, because right now you can't actually lend to a lot of 
different constituencies because you don't have this granular data. So when we think about lending right now, or banks, commercial banks by and large do, they're not lending, they're creating new currency. Right, so and so there's this whole space of alternative lending, which is really the only form of lending. In order to, I, for me to lend you something, I have, to, I have to actually have it from a legal perspective. So again, there's a lot of conflation that, that don't actually project on what we can readily observe in, in the data and in the technology. Well, and I think we probably have some disagreement on a couple points there, and then probably on whether we need to have the U.S. issue a CBDC to compete with other countries that are issuing CBDCs. I know we have disagreement on that. Um, I do want to keep moving, and I, but I want to, I want to tie, try to tie back to this as best I can. Um, we, I mean, we agree that there's a difference in a CBDC and a digital dollar as we know it now. Like that, there's no disagreement up here on that, right? I mean, that's. I mean, you really need to talk to about the entire topology. CBDC. Well, no, no, so no, any, no, but I yeah. mean, if, if it's it's one element of three factors, right? You need to consider okay, the kind of But there's a difference. Y yes. So okay, that's okay. So that, yeah, obviously, then, no one then, supports a surveillance coin. I think we all agree on that. It's all in the actual implementation. If you actually provide a censorship resistant. And instrument. I think we. I mean, I think we could have an even longer, probably another forty-five or fifty-minute discussion on on how that would or wouldn't happen, because I think. I, I know we've made the argument, and I know I know where Greg is on this, that although it's nice to talk about that digital bearer instrument being issued by the central bank, the truth of the matter is, without getting rid of the FISA courts and the surveillance system and the Bank Secrecy Act and the AML regime, they're not going to do that. I mean, I think now, and, and and maybe that's an opinion, and and maybe Christians in a slightly different spot than the rest of us. But I think that's that's really the question, right? I mean, that's would that happen? And I, think I mean, I mean, all I can say on that front is the Bank of England has explicitly ruled it out. The European Central Bank has explicitly ruled it out. The Bank for International Settlements has explicitly ruled it out, and the Federal Reserve has explicitly ruled it out. Right. No, I. I Christina, did you? No, no. I mean, yes. I think you have okay. to think about this in the context of what the U.S. sanctions regime means for our foreign policy. I mean, since 9-11, using the dollar to reinforce and to exert sanctions is one, if not the most powerful foreign policy tool that we have. So I think it's completely um, fallacious to think that there would be any concession on that point um, in exchange for what is very difficult, if not impossible, to identify as a use case right now. Okay. And I also just said, sort of parenthetically, I mean, again, use cases for central bank digital currencies are really hard to find. Usually you hear people saying things like, it will democratize finance, it will lead to innovation without any real use case. The, the use case you hear the most is it will improve cross-border payments. Um, but again, when you drill down and say, well, how would it do that? If you think about a cross-border payment, you're taking a fiat currency, you're doing a currency transaction to convert it to another um, currency, and then you're using the equivalent of the ACH network overseas as you've used the ACH network here to put it into the system. But mostly what you're doing, the largest cost in any cross-border uh, financing transaction is AMLKYC sanctions. Right, so a, a CBDC is no answer to that. It just puts another step in that process. So you go from your bank account to your CBDC to the currency transaction to another currency, and you still have to do AMLKYC sanctions. And so what has it really added? I mean, I think to Christina's point, because no one's gonna give up on that. And, and Christian did a good job of talking about some of the inefficiencies in the payment system. Christina's making a good point as well that we need to distinguish between these. I'm, I'm going to come back to both of the, those points in a way here. Um, is it not the case, or, or any of you feel as though it is, may, is it the case, or is it not the case, that, that some of these inefficiencies that we're talking about or that Christian's bringing up are actually inefficiencies that exist partly because of the, the legal framework that we have, the government framework that we have, um, particularly in the payment sector as well as maybe in the banking sector. So it, what, I'm, what I'm really getting at is with some tweaks or changes to those, to that framework, could, is it possible that the private sector could solve some of these inefficiencies without a CBDC? I'll, I'll give a short answer and then maybe we'll get a longer one. Um, You're going to give me one word, aren't you? There, no, there, there are real benefits potentially and actually um, to using um, distributed ledger networks um, to facilitate transactions. So 
you can facilitate transactions without a CBDC using blockchain-based deposits, um, using distributed ledger technology. Over the last year, I think uh, JP Morgan has cleared and settled over $300 billion in repo trades using a tokenized deposit and then a tokenized version of a security. So you can do interesting things like that without a CBDC. Similarly, there's a group called the Regulated Liability Network that we've commented on, which also has the idea of, well, look, you don't have to change the nature of, as Christina would put it, public money versus private money. You can have tokenized private money, that is uh, blockchain-based deposits or ledger-based deposits. And you could also tokenize Fedwire payments, right? That's how banks transact in central bank money. And you can imagine a system where you tokenize that. So again, you can use these technologies uh, to make a lot of things more efficient, certainly securities uh, transactions. But you don't have to have a CBDC to do that because the, the, the private sector can do that. Uh, I want to address a com confusion here. Um, distributed ledger technologies are not blockchains. Uh, the, the two are mutually exclusive. So the, the only purpose for decentralized software solution, blockchains being one example, is to change control over a set of bytes from one controller to another. DLTs don't do that. That's a different technology altogether. So point there being, um, these solutions have existed for a long time. I wrote some of the deregulation papers for the European telecommunication markets. We had something called a prepaid calling card on international um, telecommunication networks uh, for 30 years. They instantly settle in nanoseconds. So the technology has existed for some time, even before the Bitcoin white paper, et cetera. It's just a matter of implementing those in a useful fashion. But it always comes back to what we're using right now as ledger technologies. Right? These are the oldest technologies that have been around. So we need to replace ledger technologies to change the default. The default right now is surveillance. So the default right now is third-party control. So to give you a simple metaphor, because I talk about these topics quite a lot, they're hard to understand from a technology perspective, is if everybody here had the choice between a safety deposit box and an account, and you had a digital safety deposit box providing you all the same features where the bank doesn't become an intermediary any time you buy bread, which one would you choose? Right? And the, the answer is pretty obvious. But then ultimately, again, these are network technologies, and you cannot uninvent technologies. There will be least cost routing around any friction that we keep in the system, and that be to, will be to the detriment of everybody here. When we invented things like voice over IP solution, there were countries that are trying to attack these solutions. There are still countries today that outlaw voice over IP, yet obviously people downloaded these clients and started making free phone calls, and you probably use it every day right now, and that's the reason why you're not needed by the minute. But right now we're treating the legacy financial systems like it's okay to put stamps on emails. There's absolutely no technical reason for that. And again, I don't care if it's a CBDC or a FedCoin or something else. What I care about that people understand this is just technology debt that we should address. So the actual call to action here is uh, provide convertibility of this particular Federal Reserve note to a digital bearer instrument, create reverse ATMs, start, start your process there, then you can test it. There's no new issuance needed. And immediately, you get a much better system. The technology exists and has existed for a very long time. And we wrote very long articles outlining how it can be adapted. So I want to make sure that we don't address any things that are kind of red herrings and, and straw men, because you really have to understand the technological capabilities that are readily available to banks that they don't want to adapt, because there's value to be had in, in capturing data. Kind of the, the typical example is Google, and then I stop ranting. Um, that you, know, you think you're a Google user, you're not, right? You're a non-player ca character in a game called Google, right? So G Google is not a search engine. Google is selling social engineering as a service to the highest bidder. And to some extent, banks do that too. Whenever you get an email that says, just pay the minimum amount, what, what is that exactly? So they, they are not your steward usually. Anyway, I'm going to stop here because I give very long talks on this. I know, I know, I know. No, I've, I've known Christian for a little over a year now, I think. And uh, before you leave today, I'm going to convince you that you should care about whether it's FedCoin or not. That, that's my whole goal today. Um, I'm going to switch gears. We're, we're winding down closer to the end. And I, I want to go in a slightly different, slightly different direction. Um, when the Fed solicited public comments on the CBDC, Nick did uh, painstaking work to go through pretty much every single comment that they posted. Not pretty much. Um, 
it were overwhelmingly negative. These were just public comments uh, that the Fed received. They were, it were two-thirds were negative in some fashion. They showed concerns about risk to financial privacy, financial freedom, uh, as well as stability of the banking system. So why are we here? Why are we still talking about this? And, you, and we can even throw in what, what Powell, Chairman Powell said yesterday, and I know what I think about that, but let's, uh, let, let's, I'm going to throw that open to everybody. Nick, do you want like, to, why, why is this still a concern? I think the two worst reasons for why this is on the table. One is this general fear of China's doing it, so the United States has to respond. And that has so many problems with it just from the start. The second, I actually think is worse though, because it's this fear about Libra or DM and Facebook or Meta, where I encourage you all, you don't have to take my word for this, go on Google Trends and just look up CBDC and see what the activity has been like. And you're gonna notice that right after the summer of 2019, the views and the trend activity just skyrocket with activity. And it's really important to be clear here, what happened? Did Facebook introduce a stable coin? Did it put one on the market? Did it integrate it into, fa into Facebook on social media? No, it published a white paper talking about the idea. And this got officials, both in, in central banks and international agencies and ones in Congress, so scared about what might happen if Facebook goes through with it, that suddenly, I mean, CBDCs are, were not new at the time, if I'm not mistaken, China had been looking at it since about 2014, if not earlier, and yet suddenly it, it changed the game for them, that this might be a real thing. And unfortunately, despite so many people being concerned about it, despite it really not offering a solution to the table, despite any of the many promises that have been offered, just failing to stand up to scrutiny, I think those two reasons have really held strong. There's really deep claws on that. And when we get to the end of the day of looking at, there's a lot of problems with the existing system. One of my favorite things that, that Chris has said before is that the existing financial surveillance operates like we're, we're trying to catch tuna, but we're catching dolphins in the mix. And sadly, it's not just one or two dolphins, it's millions of them. And we need to fix those problems. And instead, we're just looking at the shiniest new toy in central banking. Um, yeah, I, I'd throw in a couple more. I totally agree. I mean, I, I think the Facebook thing um, just caused a collective panic around, of central bankers around the world because it got to their central concern, which is we need control of our currency and our monetary policy. And what if Mark Zuckerberg sets up a walled garden with Zuckcoin or Libra or Diem or whatever it is, and all this activity occurs outside of our control? I, I think that's a bad justification for two reasons. First, obviously it hasn't happened, and I don't think it will happen. And second, if it did happen, how is a central bank digital currency an answer to that? Why would you not do participate in Zuck world, the metaverse, and get all these benefits because you can have a non-interest bearing CBDC instead? Um, unless you're just gonna require people to have it, but then you could just outlaw Zuck world. So it, it, that didn't really make any intuitive sense to me. I think a second reason, which is a little cynical, is this is a really interesting thing to talk about. I mean, look at us, right? And if you're a central bank economist, and there are a lot of them, um, what a cool thing to debate and think about. Like, what's money? What's a central bank digital currency? And then you have a bunch of technology people, like we can do a project and think about how cool this is. And it's also interesting, every art article you read by a central bank uh, economist about studying F uh, CBDC has a chart or a graph talking about how many other central banks are studying. CBDC, and I think that came up even today. So the reason we're studying it is because everybody else is studying it, and so it's become this, it's its own little industry. The third, and I think maybe most interesting but most subtle justification, which I have, I understand at least, is, is a notion that, you, that people have a sort of natural right to a, 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 a currency issued by their government. And right now that's cash, Right? And you can look at it, and it's got the eagle on there and a bunch of Latin words. But like that's the government, and I've got my money directly from the government, and it's not J.P. Morgan's money or Truist's money. It's the government, and I, got, and I can see that eagle, right? 
And the notion is, well, if people stop using cash and it continues to decline, do people just sort of have this natural right to have that in a digital form and like a CBDC and maybe the image in your wallet will be an eagle? Um, now, I don't think that makes a lot, I mean, I can understand that. I don't think it makes a lot of sense, particularly maybe they should have their own eagle. If the deposit in your deposit account is actually guaranteed by, guaranteed by the full faith and credit of the United States in the form of the FDIC, what's really the difference between holding that with the legal eagle picture of the FDIC and holding an eagle picture of a CBDC? But I do think for some, that is a motivation and it's very sort of central banker-ish and it's very what is money-ish. So I think that becomes a, a sort of a lure um, that there's sort of this natural right there. Christine, I know well, she's just trying to. Yeah, so I'll just add, so I agree with everything that has been said. I think perhaps the concerns about China have waned a bit as sort of the full scale of what dystopian possibility is is, is out there has been made uh, clear to the American public. And I think this, you know, the concern about the surveillance state is like the most tangible thing that most people can grasp onto and probably, you know, elicits the most visceral reaction. But from a policy perspective, I think the one thing that hasn't been mentioned is the CBDC, I think, is very attractive attractive to Treasury departments and some administrations in particular because it could potentially give the executive branch more power for doing things like circumventing appropriations or leaning on the Federal Reserve, right? Because as a CBDC increases the liabilities of the central bank, right, that's also going to give the central bank more headroom to purchase more stuff, right? So that could mean that the central bank can buy more treasuries, right? Kind of loosens things up in terms of disciplining yourself over, over the debt issuance. If you think the Fed's going to have more room to sop that up, you know, maybe it means that one day the Fed can get a little bit more creative and, and might, you know, feel some pressure in coming to buy corporate bonds, start getting into some fiscal activity. And I think that the CBDC could just create a lot more sort of policy creativity for doing things even like fiscal transfers or, you know, uh, people's QE, right? Let's print some more CBDC during COVID 2.0. Hopefully that won't happen, um, right? And we can sort of get money to certain groups more more efficiently. And so I think that's part of the reason why, why you know, the, the from the policy side, CBDC looks quite tantalizing. Chris, wrap that one up, and I'll <laughs> sure. we'll go to a question. So, Congressman quickly. Emma and I had uh, did a forum last year <laughs> exactly at the same time, incidentally. So, his demand earlier, if you paid attention, was that we should all have property rights to to these, and I call this to these type of bites. That's exactly the right demand. But the important thing is we're discussing one third of the actual technology because really the most important thing is really government issued credentials. So, if you have an iPhone right now and you open up your digitally native wallet that Apple provides and you live in one of four states, you can already import your digital driver's license into that. So these are digitally native credentials. They are stored on the enclave on your iPhone. So they already give you a primitive that you can exchange right now with law enforcement and TSA in a particular way that's privacy preserving. So that's the right instrument to, to be looking at. And then the obvious other one is, is just wallet technology. So when you look at your wallet, your physical wallet, you, you see certain instruments there. So you got a driver's license, you got credit cards, and you got cash in there. So it's important that we discuss the entire spectrum. So actually just discussing CBDC is, is rather vacuous. You've got to understand the real topology and overall network topology that we're creating right now. What you're using today is not the worldwide web. It's the commercial web. That's what we are fixing. And the value transfer layer is the most important element that we're fixing right now. And to simplify this, because again, I give three-hour talks about this is we're reversing the topology from this push paradigm where you are basically um, the buyer of your first self-driving car and it decides where you should go and how to get there to a pull paradigm to where you are actually getting back into control of all your digital dust not just uh, things that we call currencies that are stored in databases and ledgers. And, and we agree, there's more pieces to this. Uh, the, the event that we had last week with Representative Rose and Kat Temp, where we talked about the Bank Secrecy Act, also a big piece of this. Uh, we have lots of these pieces that are also in line. Um, so I, I, if, we could, if we have a question in the audience, we'll, we'll do that now. We'll go to Q&A. If anybody has an off, uh, a question, then they raise their hand. If not, I do have one that I want to do online. But if anybody's got one, we can do that. No? I don't think that's ever happened. 
Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna read one that was submitted online from the Money Apprentice. Um, for the ma for the vast majority of users of our money systems today, how might a change to CBDCs solve any problem or make their money and banking experience better? That's and we'll, I, that's that's for anybody and everybody who well, wants to. It's again a bifurcated question. It all depends on the implementation. If it's programmable, uh, programmable digital bearer instrument, it makes things better. If it creates a better. surveillance coin, uh, coin, no one should be using it. It's kind of binary from downstream from that. I mean, the Fed in their paper that we discussed at length, right, declared that they want to create something that uh, that's analogous to cash. So if they did that, that'd be all fine. So we just should focus on the actual implementation rather than creating the straw man, assuming that's going to be a surveillance call and talk about that. Right? And there are so many solutions to pick from right Is now. It? So over the last six years, yeah, over the last six years, we reviewed about 1,200 solutions in the realm of value transfer. And there's so many problems in the legacy system. Again, these are database solutions. That's the important part to understand. It's a national security risk. We cannot use database solutions for anything. You cannot protect databases. We need to create a network of cryptographic primitives. It's our infrastructure at large, but it's also our banking system at large. Right now, you're already using cryptography. That's the important part to understand. When you communicate your, with your bank, you're using the same encryption algorithm to send a message to your bank. But these are not payment systems that you're using right now. You're using messaging systems. You're sending a message to your bank who's sending a message to another bank who's sending messages to another bank. So the difference with digital balance cement is that you actually transferring the value in, instead of doing this messaging system. And again, we should have had this a long time. This is not optional. Cybersecurity, uh, so cybercrime was a $6 trillion industry in 2021 upon global GDP of $96 trillion. Well, and so it's non-optional. <laughs> okay, no, no I, 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 your point is taken, Chris, but let me, let me, let me, I'm gonna push a little harder and I'm gonna ask somebody else to jump in because I, I don't hear how the CBDC itself helps change that. I think. Yeah, I mean, I think if, if you're a retail customer right now, you're sending money to your friends with Venmo or the vastly superior bank app Zelle for free. You're getting your direct deposit for free. Um, you're paying with your debit card for free. You're not. You're, you're not, paying you're for not. your, the retail, the merchant pays not that. I'm talking about the individual. Um, so you're doing that for free. You're spending money with your credit card probably more than your debit card because you're getting miles um, and, and benefits. And so with regard to all of those transactions, it is difficult to see a use case where you would say, oh no, I would vastly pr propose in say my Apple wallet, instead of having my bank card and my credit card in that wallet, I would like to have a non-interest bearing CBDC that I would use to spend where I get no benefits. And I think that's sort of the central challenge is Again, if we're talking about retail, wholesale is a different equation, but it seems like it's retail today. If you are a retail human being, um, it's hard to see anything that you can do with a CBDC that you can't do better now and pretty easily. Now, you can get into merchants and because you know, they're the ones who pay interchange um, and the whole vast you know, payment system. Payment system actually works pretty well. You tap, you, know, you wave your phone, whatever. Um, and, and that's really, to me, the, the biggest downside. You can read, for example, all of the Bank of England releases of last week, and, and they just don't talk about use cases. They don't talk about, again, to me, the biggest problem is who's going to administer this wallet for free without selling the data or charging you? And that's where I think the, the esoterics of the central bank economists don't really come sort of come to ground in the real world of how are people paying each other right now. Does anybody else, before we go back to Chris, does anybody else want to... Okay, go quick. Yeah, so go it's quick. obviously never free. It's always built in, right? So every time you got Venmo, and uh, Venmo is, is not non, not for profit, neither is Bank of America or any of the. It's always built in to whatever you're doing and the price what you're buying, or otherwise, yeah, it could be that uh, the entity is actually selling your data if it's a non-bank. Which again, 45% of all digital mitigated values are being mitigated by non-banks today, and these are the Venmos of the world. So it's never free. It can't be free in the legacy system. That's kind of the point. But it's, it's really infrastructure technology that, that... I guess the point is the CBDC won't be free either. 
Because somebody's got to do the right. AML, KYC. They you can, answer the phone. No, no, you, I can give you a $5 note, and there's no cost for either of us. Right, right but there could be costs, right? First of all, the, gov the Fed has said that, you know, other central banks have said, well, we have no interest in monetizing your data, right? There's a different kinds of fee. There's transaction costs, right? Those are fees, right? But then there's also the inherent value you're throwing off when you're engaging in monetary transactions, right? I mean, we can't be sure that the state won't eventually monetize that. And how will that look different from how the private sector monetizes it, right? They could monetize it in terms of policy outcomes, right, that people find inconsistent with their views of personal liberty, right? That's, that's slightly different from surveilling you, right? It's more like using your data to tailor policy preferences about when we should have lockdowns or where you can do X and Y, right? But to see that there's no cost to it, I think, sweeps with quite a broad brush. And we're, we are going to have to end. We're, we're, we went a little bit over. Uh, I want to keep going. I, I'm going to sneaky, in a way, sneaky, sneakily kind of keep going. I'm just going to throw one thing out there. This is where we're going to stop. I, I, it, it's, a, it's sort of a question, and we'll just kind of let it hang. I'm not so sure that the idea is a straw man in terms of what we're talking about what kind of CBDC we're talking about them coming out with. Because I, from my, my take on that, and people can go online and check uh, whether it's us or somebody else, but we have a, a very long list of quotes from officials at the IMF, at the BIS, World Bank, um, the Fed, many, uh, talking about what kind of CBDC they should come out with and why they want to do that and why they want to program it so that you can buy certain things and not buy other things and, and so on and so on and so on. So I'm, um, I'm a little bit less uh, in the it's a straw man camp on that one. But I mean, I think that's unfortunately we're over and we are going to have to end there. We'll keep talking about it. Um, and we thank you for coming and for joining us both in person and online. Thank you very much.